Welcome to The Writer's Room with me, novelist Charlotte Wood. In each episode of this podcast, I speak with another writer or another artist about their work, how they work, and what sustains them through a creative life. What does a writer do when a novel in progress dies under her pen? Does she keep pushing on? Does she throw it out and start a new one? Well, the writer I'm speaking with today, Vicky Hastridge, did neither of those things. In her words, she went fallow. She stopped making her own art and instead spent time absorbing other people's. In this episode, we're looking at artistic cross-pollination, the way one art form can speak to and inspire another completely different one. Vicky Hastrich is the author of two novels, Swimming with the Jellyfish and The Great Arch, and a new book of non-fiction called Night Fishing. Night Fishing, the unexpected result of her fallow period, is a kind of natural history of the author herself. It's a collection of taut, lyrical essays about water, art, language, family, the natural world, and ways of seeing. It's a love song to the particular waterscape of Vicky's childhood and a joyful inquiry into what it means to really look at and cherish the world around us. I've known Vicky for a long time, but watching her create this book over a number of years was kind of thrilling because her approach to her work is so entirely unconventional, surprising and risky. We recorded this conversation at my home in Sydney, so you will hear some aircraft noise and bird squawks now and then in the background. I hope you enjoy this episode of The Writer's Room. Vicky, welcome. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. So I want to talk about Night Fishing, your beautiful book of non-fiction, of essays, memoir. Um, Night Fishing came about through a very unusual and quite painful time for you. Can you, and you call this time the fallow period, can you talk about what led to the fallow period? What was it and what did it do for you? Yeah, hi Charlotte. Yes, the um, fallow period came about because I had to put aside a novel I was working on. Um, I worked on it for several years and it really broke my heart to put it aside because it had so much going for it. There were things about it I loved, but there seemed to be some uh, irrevocable problems, certainly that I wasn't in a position to solve then. Um, some to do with me, some to do with outside the novel. Uh, outside my control necessarily. So anyway, I came to this realisation that in putting it aside, I needed to be very careful because I felt I was left with this huge emptiness and with nothing to go to next in terms of writing. And I felt utterly depleted really from the effort I'd put into trying to make it work. So I decided the only thing to do was to empty out and uh, want nothing from writing 
and to let myself refill with whatever came my way to go into a period of anti-production. I think that's why I called it the fallow period. Um, and to try and take this time seriously. I didn't rush out and get another job. I had, in fact, just quit my part-time job in a last-ditch attempt to get the novel going. And I thought, no, I, I just have to do this time purposefully and rebuild and perhaps live a life of inquiry for a little while rather than a writing life. And so I took to reading and walking and I read a lot of uh, interviews with visual artists and that I loved, listening to that adjacent practice that didn't press on mine but opened... Um, my artistic thinking out. And so you were really surrendering to the possibility that you wouldn't write again. Yes, absolutely. And I, I was frightened of that really because I didn't know how I would live without that um, stimulation for your brain, that reason to live and think and look. So that's why I I did take it seriously. And when you say you took it seriously, did you have some sort of time frame that you put on this or or a... um, I mean, in my mind, I seem to think of it as that you thought I'm going to have a year of this, but I can't remember if that's accurate or not. But did you have a sort of routine or, or were you just completely free-falling? Oh, I was very much free-falling. I, I uh, as I say, I just, I walked, I read, I, I, I did think eventually, of course, I would have to get a job or do something, but I didn't want to put pressure on that. And um, I was luckily in a position where I could just wait a little bit longer. But it was about trying to block all those um, day-to-day worries out and just literally be open and empty. It's kind of a weird aim to have, but somehow it worked. And I thought maybe a year might be. I, I really didn't know. And in the end, it was probably less than that you know it was it, it was less than that it was about I don't know six months something like that it seems a very courageous thing to do for anyone but particularly for an artist or a writer to just as you say go into sort of anti-production mode because I think a lot of the time what saves us is just putting one foot in front of the other, putting down another line of words, another brush stroke. Um, so to go into that void kind of is... I've never heard of anybody else doing it. Have you... Did, how did you get this idea? Well, look, I hadn't heard of anybody else doing it, but it, it seemed to me that there was a way that this could be done creatively if that doesn't sound too strange. So you made it into an art I did. or an artwork. I, and so I guess that's something to do with the intention that you take to it. Um, 
it's maybe sounds more hippie than it actually seemed to me at the at the time and seems to me now it seems a kind of serious direct um, uh, period of intention mm. did you could you feel yourself sort of filling up again or how long did it take for you to feel that this was a good thing to be doing or a useful thing or did you just have to suspend that kind of judgment altogether? Look I I think because I was reading about other artists and there was so much genuine interest in that 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 kept me going and it made me feel as if I was filling with something but again I had no intention of really doing anything directly with that so I was reading you know books by that series by Martin Gayford about uh, David Hockney and with interviews with David Hockney and Lucian Freud and people like that and and um I did start reading a few essays as well, Janet Malcolm, Garner, E.B. White. So I was reading a little bit of that sort of material along the way too. So at a certain point, though, it did uh, emerge that you could make a book out of this. Um, how did that you know, after you genuinely surrendered to the fact that this wasn't anything to do with writing a book, something changed and you could see that all of this um, filling of the well could actually sort of spill over the top of the well and start to become something. So how, what, what happened there? Well, there wasn't a direct relationship at first. What happened was that a, a friend of yours <laughs> asked asked. Um, if if I would write um, a piece about fishing because she knew I was interested in fishing, why are you? This is the excellent Patty O'Reilly. And Patty was putting together a uh, anthology of fishing stories, and she needed more women to <laughs> to be contributors. And so. I had um, grown up fishing in the Brisbane waters on the New South Wales central coast near Woi Woi and uh, I had this these idyllic childhood holidays and, and this was a source that I really felt I could reliably draw on and I wrote a piece which... Uh, is called The Hole and is actually the first essay in night fishing. And um, having finished that, there was a response from the publisher, have you got any more of this material, family stories from simpler days? And and my immediate response to myself was, no, I'm not writing. I'm not writing nostalgia. I'm not interested in nostalgia. No, I, I have no more of that. And then a little while later, it got me thinking that that place is a kind of, it's a reliable wellspring for writing for me. And I can kind of find a myriad of things to write about there. And having read some personal essays 
then that, and I hadn't read a lot of essays before. I started thinking, this place, I could see myself being able to situate personal essays in this place. There was enough flexibility there for me to be able to drift away and out um, to almost anything and always come back to this place so that over time perhaps I, I'd be able to collect um, personal essays. And, that, and I decided then what I would do would be I would investigate my interests, my abiding interests, those things as a writer that, that or personally, that, that you know, or, ooh, there's a frizzle of interest there. And these, um, we haven't talked about what kind of a book Night Fishing is, but, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of a memoir, it's sort of essays. It's a very unusual book about about you, about fishing, but not what kind of fish do you catch? It's a, you know, it's about um, looking at the natural world. It's also very, very um, intensely about art, the artistic instinct, the artistic process. Um, I want to come back to some of those questions in a little while, but you have written um, in this book that words don't always come easily to you although on the page as a reader the prose feel you know it reads as effortless um you say that words present themselves and retreat they seem very elusive to you and so this seems to indicate that you you don't feel in control of the process a lot of the time even though you seem to be such a careful and patient artist what's your view of the role of this sort of patient waiting versus taking charge of the material. How do you know which, you know, which path to take on a particular day? Do you wrestle it to the ground or do you just wait for, you know, the visions to come? Well, probably a bit of all of the above. And I think uh, writing really is a lot like fishing <laughs> in that, there is this waiting, there's this putting the line in and being patient for the, the surprising thing you bring up, you may bring up or not bring up at all. There is this trouble between how much to wrestle and, and, and not. And how much to, you know, you've still got to get it to the surface. You know, you feel that little nibble. You know, this is me having fished about once in my life. Um, <laughs> but there's still skill and knowledge and sort of expertise involved in taking that feeling and, and bringing it out into the light. Um, and it seems to me that authority is important here, taking charge of your instincts in some way. How, what is authority in writing and how do you get it? Well, I think one of the things that I really noted when I was reading the personal essays people like, from people like Janet Malcolm, it was this thing of absolute authority and control that they have on the page. And I thought, it's just so attractive and it's instantly recognisable. So I was thinking, how, how do you get that? 
what what is that about? And I thought it's it's about knowing that this writer is not wasting their own time, so they're not going to waste yours. And that has this inherent narrative drive in it then, or um, forward momentum, mm. because as a reader, you just immediately trust that this writing is going somewhere. So is, is authority and confidence the same thing? Well, I don't know. I, I think it's possible to get and and I was thinking, I don't know how to get this, but I see also that it's to do with there being no prevaricating. And I thought, I'm going to try my best to rule prevarication out of my writing. And there is also this commitment to honesty, whatever it takes, attitude to truthfulness so um, there are no flabby statements mm. or um, there's no this is near enough it will do everything's interrogated and so I just thought I am going to um, just try and follow those basic rules at least and see what happens and I really feel I felt I needed to develop as a writer, if I was ever going to go back to that novel, I had to go out and learn things and learn more about writing. And this was part of it, learning about authority and control. Mm. Because it has such authority, this book. And it's weird because it's such a kind of... There's so much humility in the writing and yet it has this command, which maybe that's something to do with what authority is as well. And um, I, I was just going to say that the, the other thing about authority is its level of control is also to do with being in control of movement, I think, and um, finding many different ways to make movement in the writing. Before we met up today, you said something quite intriguing that perhaps we could talk about making writing as opposed to writing writing. And I said, yes, let's talk about that, and I have no idea what you mean. So <laughs> what do you mean? Well, I think this is what I've actually always done. And in the last few years, I've, you know, I've just believed that more and more that I'm not a fluent, fluid writer and this is why I say, you know, I find words hard to come by and I struggle a lot, I'm slow. But what I do, I think, is that I kind of build writing. I don't write writing. I put it together, I take it apart um, and uh, I... I I just find that it's a complex process of tinkering and and never stopping tinkering until it's just right. I can see that in in the way you work that there's a sense of yes tinkering's right because there's always a point it seems to me at which you just put the final little mechanism in place and then it's all 
whirring and working and moving and and then it looks fluid. Yeah, and before that, it's as ugly as hell. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, right at the start of the book, you say, I learned the word trespass at an early age. And then later on in the beautiful essay uh, called Amateur Hour at the Broken Heart Welding Shop, um, which is in praise of the amateur in any field, you refer to... Um, the person making the thing as the purest, the non-conformist, the willful soul. Um, I think you are one of the most willful souls I've ever known. <laughs> so how much of writing or of being an artist is, is about this willfulness? Like how much, how essential is non-conformism to being an artist or a writer? Well, I feel I just I can't comment about other people, but for myself, it's it's not um, a kind of intentional thing. It's just a need to follow what your instinct tells you to do, I guess, and to be true to that. And I don't. But you're really very know. good at resisting what other people think you should do. But Whereas it, someone like me is more subject to oh, people think this, maybe I should do that, or. But you don't, <laughs> I can see you smiling now as if, like, nah. Well, you know, maybe you're better to comment on on that because I don't kind of notice it. I just do it. Mm, that's why you're so good. Night fishing is all about the natural world and about art and the point at which those two things come together that you make come together. Um and when I was writing these questions, I was reminded of one of my favourite old Richard Ford remarks, the American writer Richard Ford, who talks about the joining of unlike things being uh, what makes art. And he said at one point that the, the ligature that you make when you join these unlike things is where the art is. So what is important to you about bringing together things like the work of Goya and a story about um, someone, Uncle Ev, you know, a, a, a man in your extended family or your sort of family uh, who was traumatised after the First World War. Um, you make these connections between Goya and Uncle Ev or Taronga Zoo and the American author Graeme Zay or indeed... Australian colonial history and the Baroque period in art, which was where your novel um, was living. So why, what's important about bringing these things together rather than exploring them separately? Look, I often don't really, I just turn again to instinct. I remember I did that very much with the Goya and Uncle Ev um, essay things seen and that these things are on my mind in the back of my mind and I'm not sure in the moment of writing that that they how I'm going to make that happen but there seems to be this draw to do that I do it and then I sort of work out how it happens and it's amazing when you your brain makes these patterns wants to see patterns and finds interest but when I look back on my work really I think of 
um, the great arch and novel about the Sydney Harbour Bridge and it's about also about an eccentric enthusiast for the bridge who is um, a, a clergyman. So you have kind of a, a dowdy Anglican clergyman and the Sydney Harbour Bridge brought together with Zane Grey. Um, I first got interested in him because I came across a bizarre mention on the internet about the Zane Grey Caravan Park in Bermagui on the south coast of New South Wales. How do those things go together? My curiosity is immediately piqued. Mm. And you find, you know, there's, there's just so much interest in working out how it happens. One of the things that is all the way through this book uh, is water, of course, um, but so is the idea of the unconscious, the underwater. You know, we kind of alluded to it before about fishing, that, that writing is like fishing, you're drawing something up from beneath the surface. Now, the most unusual, probably, essay in the book is, is called Self-Portraits, in which you did two experiments. One of those was that you took a selfie every 15 minutes for a whole day. Uh, and anyone who knows Vicky will know how utterly hilarious this is because it's not as though you're exactly an Instagram queen. I, d I doubt that you've ever taken a selfie in your life before then. Uh, and the other experiment there was when you filmed yourself asleep for two whole nights. So what on earth was this about? Um... What 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 were you doing? <laughs> what were you doing there? Well, uh, I w I was a very reluctant memoirist, really, in in the first place. So that when I started writing the essays, I was keeping any personal details to an absolute minimum. Um, but it became clear that uh, you know it's writing one hundred and one that you you. I was a character in in the in the book, so I did have to, uh, you know, give more of myself to to the book. And then I realised as as it took on its shape that the book was so much about looking, and I felt it it's part of almost the Janet Malcolm. Um, uh, honesty project that I then felt I needed to turn the gaze back on myself too and and I had been very interested in ideas around still lives the frame and I thought oh self-portraits that'll be something interesting to investigate and I was interested in the the ideas that art historians and theorists had about that too so uh, off I embarked on that research as well as then I came up with this idea, well, first the selfies, but I thought, actually, I don't really know what that's going to reveal. And then once I hit on the idea of the filming myself asleep, I just thought, ah, that's it. That's just, that's just gold because it is so, it is such a weird state when you think about it. And it is very like that, um, the underwater world, or it's a realm we can't readily see into and we don't know what's there. And you have remarked before, I think, of how 
and I've never thought this strange until you said it, but you said it's pretty weird that every single night of our lives we go and <clears throat> allow ourselves to become unconscious. <laughs> I know, we're so vulnerable. It's hours and hours too, hours and hours. And so what did you find when you when you've looked back at this footage of yourself asleep? <laughs> well, actually... Uh, it turns out I'm a really good sleeper. <laughs> so not a lot happened. Not a lot of action going on. No, there, there wasn't. But, um, yeah, I guess I always have sort of visions of, uh, in advance of what, what's going to, what may transpire, and none of that did, you know. There were no wild dreams or whatever. But um, so I found, I found it predictably a kind of death-like state because, especially because the camera I used, you know, had night vision, so there was a sort of greeny-grey tinge to it all. Um, but, yeah, I, I found that I had no attachment to that sort of dead body there in the bed. It was really, I felt like some sort of shell, and um, I, uh, it... I saw myself resembling my uh, now dead mother, so there was that um, observation. And that was very intimate, to sort of see yourself replicated, um, but in another person as well. Uh, yeah. You, um, it is very intimate. And the whole book is very intimate, which is this strange balance between you, as you say, not wanting to be a memoirist at all. I think you're possibly one of the most private people I've ever known. And yet in this book, you open yourself up in all kinds of very personal ways um, about your family, about some very painful moments, such as the deaths of your parents, but also about you and your essential nature as um, a true introvert, I think, as someone who needs solitude and so on. So I have two questions. You alluded to this a bit before, but why did you feel compelled to, to bring into the light such personal things? And secondly, what did that do to you as a writer, do you think? I think... Along the way, I I let go of worrying so much about keeping myself um, out of it because the writing became a private space for me. You know, the more I became involved in it and could see that something was growing and developing, it just became my zone and I gave to it what the writing needed. So that's the answer. So you let go of your ego completely? Yes. And then what did that do to you as a writer, do you think? I think it allowed me, in the end, to realise... I did realise something personal out of the project, even though that was not the point of the project. And it was that these weird different parts of myself do make up a whole. 
and that made me feel strong. Mm. One of the things about you is how kind of experimental you are. And there's this lovely experimental urge at the heart of the book, which maybe came about in a way because of the Fallow Project, making an artwork out of... Nothing. <laughs> out of doing nothing. Um, so through the book, you're always setting off on these sort of expeditions, often to do with the sea, like heading out in the mighty squid, your little tiny fishing boat, to experience things with a sense of purpose for something like night fishing itself, that expedition, or fishing on the low, low tide. But also these quite wacky things like your self-sleep filming experience. I know you were reading quite a lot about David Hockney as you wrote the book. And at one point you talk about his film experiment along the Hawthorne Lane. Um, how important are visual artists to your sense of how to work as a writer now? What do other art forms bring to you? Um, other art forms, of course, are food. They're, they're food. And, and David Hockney was, uh, turned out to be a, an essential part, really, of, of the book in the end because of his experimental focus. But I realised that, and this is part of making writing, is that I'm a bit frustrated with writing as a flat art form. And sometimes, don't you wish you could just reach for, oh, this, this bit would be better as a film, or, or, or this part, I'd like this to be music. I want a soundtrack over this scene. And it's also a kind of baroque urge, I've realised, that, that you want to use every single thing that's available to you. And I think that's what I've tried to do in night fishing, is to use everything. As, a, as I'm interested in the way the text is on the page as well. And, um, and you've always been interested in I that. I have, I have. So sometimes you, I want some white pay white space around some words. I don't want more words there. I just need a pause, so a musical pause. In music, you'd be able to have a little bit of silence, but um, because sometimes you just need a, a dramatic point to to have that little extra time must pass for it to, or there must be time around it for it to have its full impact. So I'm interested in that. Um, and it, it's it's part of using anything you can to make movement and it's part of control again and weights and balances what what any given piece of part of the writing can bear. Let's talk about your essay, My Life and the Frame which is astounding, and it begins with your work as a camera operator for the ABC filming a football game, and it's just the most magnificent sort of poetic um, explanation of what happens when you're following um, movement in a frame like that. What's your interest in the frame, and where did it come from? The frame, I think... It, 
I think it comes from being a kid and looking out the window of the holiday house, the old holiday house our family went to on the waterway. Which is sort of at the heart of the whole book, isn't it? Yeah, it is, it is. And, you know, I'd be awake early before everyone else was and be looking out there. And just as a really little kid, I just loved what I saw out that window, the waterway, the boats going by. Do you think you loved the containment of it within that frame? Well, it's hard to know, a chicken and the egg thing, but um, when I came to uh, become, you know, I got involved in film and TV and then worked for the ABC and was a camera operator, the frame idea, I just loved that travelling frame. And I was never really interested in um, still photography, even though I, I did that as an art option in high school. But um, but it's the moving frame and the selecting and containing um, a picture until it sort of inevitably destroys itself because of the action. And I loved that um selecting and highlighting something that was otherwise sort of lost in the movement of life, I think. But coming back to your um, innate willfulness, also you like when the frame sort of explodes or when things pour out of the frame and your interest in the Baroque, it sort of uh, seems to me very connected to that. It is, because I think... I, I do. I just love that about the Baroque. That, and I'm I'm interested. Can you in, explain that what that means? You know, the the frame business in the Baroque. Well, in the Baroque, there's this real because it's all about interactivity. Um, it's trying to draw the attention of the audience in. The whole idea behind the Baroque was the the church was trying to counter the pull of Protestantism, and so it charged its. Um, its artists to the the Catholic Church charged its artists to totally engage, use whatever means possible to to engage the congregation and um, uh, drag it back to the Catholic Church. And uh, so every means possible was enlisted. And so the Baroque's really interested in reaching out to the audience and getting this interactivity going. And so. In a lot of artworks, there there are there's a lot of play with witnesses looking in and people looking and subjects looking out of pictures. So that frame is broken down, and I think this so is. Can, sorry to harp on this, but yeah. the detail of this is really interesting. If people haven't seen or known, you know, can understand what you're talking about. So you've got figures on the. It, like both in and out of the pictures. Yeah, so, sometimes there'll be sort of semi-sculptures that are purposely made and part of the artwork that are looking into the into a, a, a picture or um, there are, there's, a, there's a sort of fake painted frame and, and figures inside the picture have got one leg out, climbing out. So this really captivates me and I think I've come to feel that this is the central tension of art. The frame is all about containment. There's the tension between freedom 
and constraint or restraint or control, that's that's the business of art. That's just it to me. And as an artist, it's also the tension that you live with to be completely immersed in your art and yet you can't be there are there you have to find means to live or you have social responsibilities and family responsibilities but so i just think this is the central tension of art it seems to me that tension between um, containment and sort of wildly free expression is also important in being able to communicate your artistic impulses to another person. Absolutely. Un- uncontrolled blurt is not going to get you there. Um, control is necessary. We yearn for this sort of continual flow, but, you know, it's it's not possible. There is so much restraint and control required to communicate accurately, and I'm really interested in accuracy precision as well as wanting this you know wanting to communicate this kind of the uplift and blast that that central nervous system feeling that art can give another thing you're interested in something you call enactment writing that enacts its subject matter so a, can you explain what that means? And then also tell me, how do you know when you're doing this or does it have to happen by itself? Yeah, I think it probably does have to happen by itself, but then you recognise it and then you don't muck with it yeah. <laughs> or you give it what it needs to do that to the best of its ability. But to describe it... Um, I think the easiest description of it would be to bring up uh, Virginia Woolf's To the Lighthouse so that there you have um, this central middle part of the book where suddenly we discover Mrs Ramsey's, you know, death. She's just suddenly wiped out of the book. The first section of the book is She been, is the central character yes, in the first part she's of the book. The, absolute life. The, the, Without her, there is no book. No, there's the activating force. And suddenly then you you um, plunged into this middle chapter which in which the holiday home that's central to the first section is closed down, it's winter, it's it's um, desperate, and you learn of Mrs Ramsay's death in a set of brackets. In one sentence. In one in sentence. After so a couple of pages. So it's utterly devastating. And so to me, this is, that is the dark, that, you know, if you think of the sweep of the lighthouse light, that is the dark patch in the middle of the mm. sweep. Beautiful. And I just, it's so stunning. And then it lights up again. And then it lights up again. And another really good example would be Janet Malcolm's 41 False Starts, that that essay. And it literally is 41 false beginnings of a profile of an artist, um, David Sell. And 
uh, it's not a gimmick. Each time you do, you learn more, and in fact, it's it becomes informative about his his personality. This sort of fractured um, nature of the essay um, tells you about him. So it's it is reflects its subject. So there can't be a gimmick involved in doing this, that's for sure. And that's why I say I don't think you can set out to do it or it would just simply be that way. It has to happen innately. And I, I guess I've only managed to do it a couple of times maybe in, in this collection of mine. But I think of the end of an essay called Things Seen and it's that's the one with about Goyer and the First World War veteran, Uncle Ev. And it ends with um, me wading out in the shallows and uh, the, the very last line I see a stingray shoot off and it's basically in my peripheral vision. But I'm hoping, I think that essay works that for the reader that is just the very last line and that sort of quick aside. And I hope that when somebody reads that, they will feel the sudden shock of that and enact exactly the feeling I had when it happened to me. Mm. We're coming to the end now, but I something that I kind of... I'm always concerned about, and I'm always full of admiration for people who are not concerned about this. Is the idea of writing as an engagement with the with the the wider world, or um, you know, the concerns of the contemporary world and our our kind of roles as citizens in the world and all that sort of stuff. Um, and I feel like night fishing is a book in one sense, very much about the contemporary world, but also removed from the world. And yet you are hearing from readers now very beautiful responses about what it means to them in the contemporary world. What does it do when you hear from a reader what your book has meant to them? Well, it's so strange when you write a book and it goes out and it goes away from you really and it's almost as if it ceases to exist so it's very strange when you hear back that it has had a life with somebody else and you're a bit shocked by one of the letters you received yeah well I guess to explain that I probably need to be a bit more specific in that this reader was a visual artist um, who had recently um, been affected terribly by the bushfires and the book had been put into her hands. And she said that in that, you know, immediate crisis, it helped her because it just reminded her that she is what she does as an artist and that that's what matters and it brought us back to something essential that was the the life-saving factor of art and it just really moved me and it was a reminder back to me that what we do matters and and when I write that sort of very 
kind of um, private material in the first place, to have it reach somebody and be of a kind of practical assistance, it was incredible. I think that's a very perfect place to end. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Charlotte. I've loved chatting. Well, that's it for this episode. You can find details of our conversation today on the podcast page of my website, charlottewood.com.au. Thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me again next time on The Writer's Room.